Good morning and welcome to today's episode of The Global Review. My name is Han Hor and this is a conversation with Samira Gasimova. Since 2021, Samira Gasimova has been a governance consultant at the World Bank, focusing primarily on governance global practice of Europe and Central Asia. She is a Chevening Scholar and has completed a master's degree in economics at the LSE. She has also completed a micro-master's in data, economics, and development policy by MIT and has taught and audited classes at Princeton University. First established in 1944, the World Bank currently consists of 189 member countries and five institutions, including the IBRD, IDA, IFC, MIGA, and the ICSID. These institutions collaborate with governments and the private sector to produce sustainable solutions to foster economic development across the globe. The World Bank remains one of the world's largest sources of funding and technical expertise for developing countries with aims to end extreme poverty and to improve the living standards of the poorest 40% of the population in every country. This episode of the Global Review seeks to explore the details of a career at an international organization by conversing with someone working in such a global institution who has to adapt to an ever-changing climate in international affairs. Today, we will discuss the best means of breaking into the international development sector the significance of working at the World Bank within the context of contemporary global issues, and finally ending off with giving advice to anyone who wants to work in the sector. So I just wanted to ask, um, could you please first off start off by describing the process of becoming a consultant at the World Bank? Like, what was your process like? Sure, I can tell from my experience how it has been. So I was in the last semester of my studies at LSC. I remember it was around like April and I was writing an essay for one of the um courses that I was taking and one of my friends who used to work at the World Bank HQ in this year uh texted me that well World Bank is starting to implement a project in Azerbaijan and they're looking for someone who knows the local context who uh, preferably knows the knowledge and has a relevant background I was like okay that sounds good so I applied and in the interview process it turned out that my future supervisor who was interviewing me was actually an LSE alumnus and oh. he he had already reached out to LSE professor to ask if there are any candidate potential candidates that would be a good fit for this project. So um, I guess that was one of the benefits of studying at LSE and like having this network. But yeah, so I passed the interview process as well, and and I became an um, like consultant at the World Bank. Um, and one of the reasons which helped me to like become a consultant at the World Bank was that I had uh, three years of uh, experience working in Azerbaijan in one of the biggest state-owned enterprises. And of course, the language and knowing, um, being familiar with the local institutions definitely helped. Uh, so there are two types of consultants at the World Bank. One is short-term consultant. And being an STC, you get a contract for 150 days. And there's another type of consultant, which is called ETC, which is like extended term consultant and it's like 12 months contract and uh usually like etc positions uh, are posted online on the website of the world bank and it's a very straightforward procedure like all of other uh, job procedures like job applying procedures like you uh fill in the application form like write your cover letter then go through the interview process and then finally when when you're you pass all of the stages you get an offer from the world bank and um, what kind of like, can I ask like what kind of interview questions they asked you or was like, was the application process particularly competitive or? 
Um, I knew it was competitive because uh, after I was selected, I was told that there were many candidates for this position. Um, but the questions were like, well, are you familiar with the economy of Azerbaijan, with the local institutions, what generally, like, you know, about the cultural, like, in terms of, like, institutional culture. And the project was about, like, finance, PFM, like, public financial management. So they asked uh, about my knowledge in the area and also, like, classes that I took at LSE about my previous work experience. Now, so, yeah, if I remember correctly, these were, like, all kind of questions that they asked me about. Mm. And um, so obviously you're a consultant of governance global practice. So can you please go into more detail about what exactly that entails and how it contributes to the World Bank's overall agenda? Sure. Uh, as all other practices at the World Bank, um, governance global practice is also helping World Bank to achieve it's two overarching goals, the first one being ending extreme poverty and the second one being boosting shared prosperity. And it has been uh, proved by uh, different experiences and different uh, scholarly articles that countries with stronger institutions are more resilient and they can deliver more valuable services to its citizens. Uh, they can address climate change issues better. They can earn trust of its citizens. So what um, Governance Global Practice is doing, they're supporting clients to build more capable, resilient, sustainable institutions. And they're supporting different governments to achieve governance and also public administration reforms, which also includes some public financial management reforms, public investment management reforms. Uh, and generally, there are three ways of supporting clients uh, at, at, at this practice. But like one is cross-stakeholder dialogues. Another one is like technical assistance or lending projects. And the next one is like research. Um, it's when the teams are researching their best practices across the globe and they're helping client governments uh, to find the better solutions. So is there anyone that you specialize in in particular, like whether it's like research or support? Uh, mine is more in on technical assistance and lending. So we are helping governments uh, like one-on-one, -on -one, like with like hands-on experience. We go, we travel to countries and we help them um, in person on how to improve their like different sectors, like I don't know, budget policy or like education, depending on their interest. And so you are a governance consultant for specifically Europe and Central Asia. And obviously like these two regions have very different like political systems. And I just wanted to ask, does this alter the way that you approach them? and? What do you think are the most significant differences when consulting for these two regions? So when we talk about Europe and Central Asia, as you know, like it's it has like diverse range of countries that span over two continents, and they're at their various stages of development. Like when we are working with them, we usually factor in the historical, economical, cultural differences. Um, for example, like just to give you a numeric um difference. Um, the average income level for overall like ECA region, which is like your friend Central Asia, it's around 26.6 K USD dollars. But for, when we look at the Western Europe, it's 39 K dollars. But when we look at some countries in Central Asia, it's 5 K dollars. So there's like a lot of difference between the average income levels. And it's not only like in um, average income levels, but also in their historical development. For example, there are some countries that are still um, have the legacy of central planned economies such as some countries like Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, Armenia, they were part of Soviets. 
There are some countries in this region that are undergoing some reforms to become EU candidates, like they aspire to become one, such as Georgia nearly became a candidate uh, to be, become a EU member. But also there are some countries, especially in Western Europe, that are part, already part of EU, but they're trying to uh, you know, live up to EU standards. So there are like different types of countries and when we're working with them, of course, we consider the level of their institutionalization, like their managerial, like their technical capacity, their accountability level, the corruption level, cultural differences, like all of this needs to be factored in. And so did you have to kind of brief yourself on all of these like before entering the job or did you kind of just pick this up whilst you were like out in the field? It's always the best idea to research the country before you go there, so that to become ever <clears throat> to become familiar with their, uh, like mostly like cultural work environment because it's not the same uh, approach when you go to like let's say to I don't know Europe like some Western Balkan countries like let's say to Bosnia and when you go to some Central Asian countries like uh, Kyrgyzstan Kyrgyz Republic. So you always have to research before you go. I think it's the best one because when like when you just go to the country, it's maybe difficult for you uh, to learn at the spot and you can make some mistakes that you wouldn't think it would be a mistake, <laughs> but it's not like culturally appropriate. So it's always a good idea to research before. Yeah. So you were mentioning before that when it comes to like your your job, you also have to look at you know, corruption cases and like stability within government institutions. So I just wanted to ask further, like what role do you have as a consultant in order to help combat these issues of corruption within a state's government and helping to build more transparent solutions? Yep, overall I would say increasingly World Bank is supporting a lot of open government reforms in client countries, especially to increase the trust level between the government and citizens. And as uh, you know, like the more the, the more transparent the government is, the more trust it gets from its citizens. And World Bank is implementing a lot of projects that improves this trust between citizens and the government, especially there are projects that try to increase the efficiency of public procurement systems because it's one of the areas that are most um, you know captured by the corruption in some of the countries. I was very briefly involved in anti-corruption projects in Uzbekistan. It was an ethical service advisory, and we were helping uh, anti-corruption agency of Uzbekistan to increase its capacity, but also not only like of this agency, but also of other relevant stakeholders. And the government also wanted to improve the relative legislation and institutional framework in this anti-corruption area, and it coincided with the period when Uzbekistan was renewing um, its constitution and uh, there were also some institutional changes like some of the ministers were uh, merging together so it was uh, kind of in the middle of many reforms um, but but yeah like I wasn't involved in many anti-corruption projects uh, but that was one of them and I know that a lot of my colleagues are working in um, a lot of anti-corruption and open government reforms across the region and can I just ask like why do you why like do you think that the trust level of like some populations for the governments is so low. Like, do you think there's any explanation for that? Um, it's maybe legacy of some historical things. Uh, like my country was uh part of Soviet. Uh, like, I don't know, like twenty years ago, uh, twenty five years ago. Um, and like in Soviets, like there was a tradition of giving bribes, for example, 
like even at the universities, they would take bribes to get a good grade for the citizen, uh, for the students. Um, so like seeing uh, that bribes actually solve problems may um like may bring the total like I don't know kind of like wrong implication for the citizens that well government is not efficient you shouldn't trust the government and also if there are some misdoings in uh some of the governments like if they're not using uh let's say public resources in a transparent manner uh citizens may have some questions like why for example this statesman is so rich when the standard of living uh, of the citizens is not as high as it should be uh, so I think these are some factors that can contribute to the decreased trust between the government and citizens. And just with like your own, like, I know you said like you were only part of a few, but like just with your experience, like how did you go about like approaching these governments like in the first place to acknowledge like the idea of corruption? Um, like most of the governments are actually aware of the problems that exist in the corruption regime. Like, uh, they actually want to solve this uh, problem. They approach the World Bank to support them to overcome these issues. Uh, in many countries, like the governments are trying to decrease the shadow economy to make um, to to make sure that like economy is becoming fully transparent and they can um, receive the taxes and the corruption level is very low. So it's not like uh, like World Bank goes to the government and say, say, see, you have a problem there. But usually these governments are aware of their problems and they um, approach World Bank to assist them in, in this identified problems, like to find a better solution. And um, in 2022, I know you were a part of a mission to Azerbaijan as part of implementing the medium-term expenditure framework capacity building program to strengthen the impact of public spending. And you referenced before saying that you had to work with different stakeholders, but just with reference to this particular project, like what was it like cooperating with governments and different stakeholders to implement this particular framework? Uh, so it's still one of my main projects. Actually, it is the main project. <laughs> so the real objective of the project is to strengthen the efficiency, transparency of public expenditures in Azerbaijan. And we are trying uh, to support the government to implement medium-term expenditure framework, like to make sure that medium-term budget policy implementation is in a good uh, spot. And in like we are working with many stakeholders for this project. One of our main counterparts is the Minister of Finance, but we are also working with Minister of Economy, Chamber of Accounts, the Parliament of Azerbaijan, and many other stakeholders. And for me, it was a positive experience, and also it was kind of like eye-opening um, because I had a chance to see how decision making is being made at the higher levels. And <clears throat> I was also lucky uh, to be part of the process that like some of my team members were assisting the government to um, like improve their legislation, especially in terms of public investment management. They're helping uh, the government to uh, like make sure that their current legislation is up to the uh, speed of the global experience. Um, so for my role, it was a good and positive experience. And most of the stakeholders were very welcoming. They were open for new ideas and they were seeking our advice on how to make things better. So like, how long do you think like these projects normally go for? Like, how long do you think you'll be um, invested in this project? Um, so it depends on the project duration because, um, so as a consultant, you get to choose which projects you want to work on um, and how many days you want to allocate for a different project. And so basically like it's up to your decision, but usually these kind of projects um, can go up to like 
don't know, five years, some go like for three years, some go for one year. Uh, this project in Azerbaijan is for five years and we are in the third year of the implementation. And since I like the project and since I'm already familiar with the context and, and the area, I, I feel like I, I still want to invest my time in it, <laughs> maybe until the end of the project. But yeah, usually as a consultant, you have the, the independency to choose uh, how long you want to stay in one project. If you don't like anything, like you can move on to other projects. Of course, if the task team leader of different projects are fine with your involvement. And can I ask like, like you said it was a very good experience uh but also like were there any like specific challenges that you feel like you had to overcome as a consultant or like just like within the project um i like i can sing like my team is very international and i am one of the two local uh employees that are involved in the project and sometimes it's difficult for foreigners to understand our local context um and I was having some like you know difficulties sometimes to explain things because like from the local perspective, from the perspective of the stakeholders, I could see the issue. But from when you look from the international experience, if in like especially if you have experience in developed countries, you may not see this as an issue. So sometimes I was finding this challenging, you know, to be kind of like <laughs> to have this balance and uh, to make sure that like I'm helping my team to understand some of the con context that maybe do not make sense to them or or anything. But um, usually it was like very smooth and we didn't encounter many issues there. Um, but yeah, I can't think of anything right now. Of course, there are some language barriers, etc. but that's solvable issues. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so now uh, we're going to move on to the next section, which is kind of just talking about the World Bank within like the context of, I guess, like the con the contemporary world and like looking at it within the context of like more global issues. So we know that the governance global practice also addresses the importance of addressing climate change and development. And the World Bank itself has stated that its goal is to create more sustainable solutions for developing countries. So as a consultant for the World Bank, what do you think are like some challenges of incorporating sustainability within economic development that people don't often think about? Um, yes, overall, I would say that climate action and climate change issues are a big agenda of the World Bank, and World Bank is one of the largest multilateral financiers of climate actions. And I think uh, only like in the last fiscal year of 2023, World Bank contributed around 30 billion USD for climate action. And uh, one of the products that I really like at the World Bank is uh, starting from 2022, they uh, started to produce um, CCDR, it's climate uh, country climate development reports, uh, that, and this reports help government to integrate climate change considerations to reduce emission and to make sure that it's contributing to the economic development agenda. And <clears throat> since last year, all of the bank operations that require um, the board decision, they have to demonstrate how they meet um, the Paris Agreement goals and other sustainability criteria. Um, I think one of the challenges lie still in, in the government regulations. Well, when we say like sustainability, climate change issues, we usually uh, put the responsibility on the governments, but there's also like private part, um, private companies that have their role, that they should have their role in it. And sometimes these um, companies are having some issues uh, to integrate 
um, conduct businesses in all of the countries, like when it comes to integrating sustainability, because they need to have proper legislation in place. And not all of the governments have it, because like when you look at, uh, for example, green financing instruments like green loans or like disaster risk financing methods, these are all kind of like new methods of financing and they don't have uh, proper legislation and regulations in most of the governments. Uh, so one of the challenges is to make sure that this kind of legislation uh, exists in uh, at least like most of the countries. For example, I know Azerbaijan is trying to introduce uh, green loans but uh, to, to to like implement green laws in the first place, you need to have a proper regulation and the government is still working on it. So I think like the main challenge is to ensure that most of the governments have this regulation in place and that uh, private companies can feel confident uh, to integrate climate issues into their businesses. And do you think like incorporating climate change will kind of help contribute to like that, the building the transparency in institutions and overall government stability? Yeah, that would definitely help with the transparency issues because when uh, more private companies are involved in sustainability, they which means that like because there's a rivalry in the market, they will try to do their best to increase the transparency to have um access like open access to data, etc. And that will definitely have its contribution. So and as you joined the World Bank as kind of a consultant in 2021, which was, the world was still beginning to emerge from the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, do you think the pandemic highlighted any issues in governance systems and institutions? And do you think this influences the work that you do now? Yes, I remember that period. <laughs> I wasn't allowed to travel to the US because most of the people were working from, from home as everywhere in the world. Uh, so I was also working uh, from my home. Um, but yeah, I'm glad that period is over. <laughs> so we're all made it clear that the government should be ready to uh, prevent, to prepare for, and to respond to any kind of uh, pandemic or any kind of crisis that may emerge. And it has been um, shown that countries with better institutions are more resilient during COVID and they have effective management, they have, they're doing better job in terms of coordination, they have enough resources to cover, to have like, you know, proper health responses, and they have the political accountability. And this is something that the World Bank is helping to build, uh, especially like in my practice, we're helping to build these resilient institutions with government um, client countries. And uh, some of the governments uh, back in like COVID period, they made some big promises uh, to mitigate the effects of the pandemic without considering the long-term effects in terms of uh, budgetary costs. And this was one of the examples that um, governments should be better like at controlling their public expenditures. Um, the World Bank has also been assisting more than 100 countries um, in terms of uh, their health responses. Um, and it also like changed in the way like some of the operations were conducted, and as always like like remote. Uh, for example, when we talk about the employees, uh, right now like uh, some of the employees can still work remotely. Like you don't have to go to the office every day, which I think made it like made some things better uh, in terms of like social life, work balance. Etc. But um, yeah, the World Bank is still trying to help the governments with the proper communication, with the disaster risk um, preparation, um, and then like developing proper responses. And so, 
thank you so much. Uh, and obviously now the world is kind of, um, the world is kind So now we're going to kind of move on to first, thank you so much. And then, um, so how do you think the World Bank and like your current role as a consultant has kind of had to adapt to the current conflicts occurring in the world, such as what's currently going on in Ukraine and the Middle East? Yes, unfortunately, nearly half of the world's extreme poor lives in um, countries that have conflict, that are in fragile uh, conditions, that have some uh, violence, and the World Bank has been assisting such countries. For example, for uh, Ukraine, after the war has started, uh, the World Bank has established a trust fund, URTF. It's Ukrainian um, Relief, Recovery, Construction and Reform Trust Fund. And it helps the government to sustain um, an administrative capacity. And there's another project called uh, Peace, which is helping the uh, with the financing salaries of uh, civil servants and teachers. And more than 30 million people have been actually benefited from this program. And also in many regions, in Middle East and uh, North Africa, there are some countries that are in civil war, such as Syria, Iraq, Libya, Yemen. Uh, and the total portfolio of World Bank in these countries is around like 25.2 billion. So World Bank is assisting them in different areas such as education, health, climate, uh, transport sector. And World Bank has adopted some policies when it comes to uh, people working in fragile countries. For example, like, um, as I said, like short-term consultants are eligible to work 150 days usually. But if you work in countries uh, that have like conflicts or like in um, fragile condition, then you can work up to 190 days. Uh, so there are some exceptions and some potential benefits for the people working in uh, such conditions. And do you feel like with the regions that you work with specifically, have you kind of had to bring up these conflicts within like your conversations in like the projects that you're in? Um, usually no, but it's because I wasn't involved in uh, projects in such countries. Like, uh, it depends on like which projects you're involved in and which countries, which governments you're working on. But in my experience, I did not have to bring it. I don't remember such experience, but I'm sure my colleagues may have different experiences. So obviously now with kind of the rise of data and artificial intelligence, um, do you think this will change the way that the World Bank has approached international development? And how do you think it has influenced your role as a consultant? Um, uh, for sure, like AI has contributed a lot um, to people's personal lives, to their work life. And uh, there are a lot of like, known potential benefits of using AI for development purposes. There was a, a company that um, like they, they the, the company was called like Mapbox and they developed an app uh, which kind of like predicts how and when people uh, try to evacuate uh, based on the uh, crowdsourcing of the location information from their smartphones. Uh, so and the World Bank has also like specific area uh, that is called GovTech. So it's uh, using latest technologies to help governments uh, build more resilient institutions or to overcome uh, challenges such as poverty. Um, and um, like, but the problem is like with AI is that it's usually concentrated in developed economies because uh, producing 
of the AI technologies, you shall need like to produce, you need uh, good, uh, talented people, you need some resources and some developing countries may kind of like stay outside of this process. But of course, the benefits are like worldwide, like it can be used even by the people in the developing countries, but it needs to be regulated. It needs to be regulated to make sure that people that are using it has the minimal risks and um, like regulating is regulating AI, I think is really important and difficult. One of the first, actually, the first AI legal act was passed by EU uh, last year, and it's a precedent. Um, the current regulation, like like what kind of like AI needs to be regulated, and how they should ensure that the risks are minimal. Uh, in my job, I haven't used AI much because. Um, my, my my job is like client specific, and most of the information cannot be found online, so it's not public. Uh, but overall, like in my personal life, of course, I do use AI as many people. AI especially helps with the repetitive actions, such as like if you're working on Stata or R or Excel, it helps me to help you with I don't know finding some commands or to skip some uh, repetitive tasks, or if you need a personal shopper or I don't know like. Um, if you need some recommendations in, in like different sectors, such as um, uh, like in your hobbies, et cetera, it might be, become handy. But um, like in, in the job, it can be used as to improve the writing style or I don't know, to write professional emails, uh, to overcome the language barriers. Um, but yeah, like I haven't, I mean, World Bank has its own policy towards AI and um, I haven't, used it much and I haven't seen my colleagues using it much but for now because AI is still at the very beginning development term and we don't know like what the future will bring. So I just wanted to ask you uh, what would you say to someone who wishes to pursue a career in international development or working in an international organization? I would say that's a very exciting journey. <laughs> So when I was considering where to work after graduation, I was thinking between public sector and private sector, it was kind of like black and white to me. And then uh, when I heard about this uh, opportunity, I was like, ah, I've never thought about international development, but that actually sounds fun. And I was not wrong. Uh, international development offers different, like rich, wide opportunities. It, you can help in um policy development you can help in uh donor coordination you can actually deliver aid on the ground you can travel to many countries uh and you can uh get to know their like institutions get to know their policies different approaches and it's a very interesting job because you feel like you're actually making an impact you're actually getting a contribution to something and this is not something that you would um easily achieve like not, not easily but in the short term achieving like uh, private sector or public sector and as in uh, when you work in international development you can work in different international NGOs you can work in uh, development organizations such as World Bank you can uh, work in international organizations such as UNDP, UNDP or ADB you can work in think tanks you can work in academia so there are like a lot of places that you, you can choose to work for uh, but if, if it's something that you are interested in, I would say you should uh, make sure that you are you are a good fit and you you have the necessary skills. I mean, I say necessary skills, uh, like if you want to become a good, uh, let's say, like economics consultant, then you have to make sure that you are good with uh, some programs such as data or R 
and you're like you have enough proficiency to work in Excel. And then uh, like the more languages you know, the better it can be. Like if you know, uh, like on top of English, if you know also like some Spanish or French or Arabic or Russian, that's definitely a plus. And if you, you should definitely be able to use your network, especially like if you have, if you're studying in a prestigious university such as LSC, you should um, make sure that you're using the most benefits of its outstanding students and alumni services, alumni networks. Uh, trust me, I've seen a lot of like LSC alumni across uh, many countries and it's an asset. Like when you talk to them, you you feel the warmness <laughs> and you feel that like this is the community you actually belong to. So I would suggest all of the students to make the best out of this network. Thank you. And what do you think is like, was there anything particularly particularly rewarding about like your time at the World Bank? Like anything that sticks with you? Um, yes, definitely. The rewarding experience was uh, when you feel that your contributions are included in the legislation of some country, um, and that that's a, like that feels like an achievement. Uh, when you feel that like when you research the best practices and you suggest the government to include this clause into their this article or their into uh, in some uh, institutional framework, and when they and when they accept it and when they put it, you're like, okay, that that like I made a difference. <laughs> And then, like when you uh, like for example, working in some uh schools that is serving um, like that has some educational services for uh underprivileged uh students, and you help the school with the financing of the school, or like um making sure that they are designing the curriculum that is up to the international standards, and when you see that it's actually making a difference in the lives of the students, you definitely feel rewarding. So. Like when you choose to be a consultant or when you choose to work in international development, there are a lot of sectors that you can work in depending on your interests. You can lean towards health sector or education sector or transport or trade or economics. And depending on the sector, there are a lot of rewarding but also challenging experiences that you should be ready for. Thank you so much for your input, Samira. I'm certain that our listeners have found them very invaluable. So thanks for having me. It was a <laughs> well, it's clear that the World Bank continues to be a leading global institution in international development. And the discussions today have certainly painted a more detailed picture about working in such a large organization with aims to help developing countries in a sustainable way, which allow them to prosper. I would like to thank Samira once again for taking the time to sit with the Global Review to discuss your role in the World Bank. Thank you to those who have tuned into this podcast, and we hope that this was useful for anyone considering a career in international development or working at an international organization in any capacity. On behalf of the London Globalist and the Global Review, we wish you a pleasant day. Thank you for tuning in. <laughs> Thank you for having me.